Hi, everyone. You're listening to Is the World on Fire, a podcast created by students and alumni at the Croc School of Peace Studies at the University of San Diego. My name is Franco Escobar. And I'm Taya Clement. And today we're doing something a little different. We are looking back at a conversation we had with Kim Stanley Robinson as part of the Croc School Distinguished Lecture Series, which took place in March 11th. Having Stan on campus was a really wonderful opportunity. Stan has such a foray experience and insight into the world of climate change and climate mitigation, and he does so from such different angles than I think we traditionally see in our peacebuilding space. To give you guys a little context, Stan is a science fiction writer and the author of the book Ministry for the Future, which Franco and I had the pleasure of talking to him about. But he's also the author of more than 20 books, including the famous Mars Trilogy. In 2008, he was named a Hero of the Environment by Time magazine. He's also attended numerous multilateral environmental fora, such as the Conference of Parties 26, otherwise known as COP26, which was held in Glasgow. I think it's testament to the ways that he has entered the field, not only as a fiction writer, but also as someone active in the political space. Yeah, I agree. And if that was not enough, he even has an asteroid named in his honor. Asteroid 72432 was named Kim Robinson. That's quite remarkable. Definitely. In a few minutes, you will be listening to the Q&A session that took place that day. But in the meantime, why don't we talk about why it was significant for us as students at the Croc School? So I think, you know, when we were approached, I definitely asked myself, you know, why are we having a fiction writer to campus? I mean, we're a school Mm. that focuses a lot on action, on innovation, and on just looking at peace building and conflict resolution as a practice. And so bringing an author in was the first time, at least for us, for you and I, that we've had a conversation more about creative writing in the context of the work that we do. Yeah. And maybe ironically, this has also been perhaps one of the conversations that is closest to real fires, right? Absolutely. Um, Happening around the world and how to address them. Climate change might be the biggest fire, literally and rhetorically, that we are trying to address. So that's quite the irony. I agree. And so I think what was remarkable for me about this conversation was the way that it opened my mind to the types of stakeholders and actors and voices we need in the work for change, right? Because Mm -hmm. change is not just action. It's also the shifting of paradigms, of mindsets, of hearts. That's a lot of the work that we talk about in these contexts. Yeah. I think for me, perhaps the biggest takeaway is the importance of imagination and Mm -hmm. how that can actually help you conceive real paths toward solving real problems, right? Like I'm trying to think of some of the climate change issues that I have experienced in my life Mm. uh, and seen. Uh, Mexico is a country known for water scarcity issues, anywhere from Mexico City sinking to conflicts between the government and local communities, water payments that Mexico gives Mm. to the U.S. and a bunch of other issues. And so I think when reading this book, I just had an extrapolation of all the things that could happen, you know, not necessarily in Mexico, but around the world. I definitely agree. I think water is probably one of those those topics that's the easiest to see the issue of climate change at play. Right. Mm -hmm. And how water is is shared, utilized, sourced, etc. Also, he mentioned how fiction gives you kind of this coverage to talk in a way that 
would not be permissible in any other space, right? Mm-hmm. Because you can try out a crazy idea and see where it lands and you're not faulted for it, right? No one's hurt. So I loved the way that he toyed with different storylines, different characters and approaches to solving the climate crisis. And it allows us a kind of a mental playground or an ideological playground in which to entertain different ideas, like you said, about these issues that affect a lot of us around the globe. It's interesting because in a way, this book, when I was reading it, I felt like it was reading catastrophe, right? I was reading, I was reading all the bad things that could happen to humanity if we don't reach our climate goals. Then there's the blurry line between me thinking that this is catastrophe, this fiction, this playground that he plays with is really horrible to read. Mm -hmm. Uh, But on the other hand, this is the best case scenario. This is one of the least violent outcomes that nature would have on humans if like in terms of climate change. And so it's it's really inspiring to see that blurry line between, you know, yes, this is fiction, but it's also known to be a book that was quite real and mm. and somehow optimistic. There was optimism yeah. there, yeah. I think if I were to think about my biggest takeaway or biggest surprise in that conversation was uh, on a more personal note for Stan, just his humor and the level of kind of objectivity and hope he has for the future. He mentions in, and you know, our audience will hear more of this in the recording, several different advancements that have been made in the two years since he wrote the book, which he was writing in 2019, and how that gives him reason to hope. Everything from, you know, private investment that's going on around the world to different types of coins or or money that we can be using, you name it. I think for me, with all the catastrophe that was in the book and all of the the anguish and and pain that some of the characters suffered through, there is this ability to to see the future, which is nice. I love that. I also got a little bit of that optimism myself from him in the lecture that I didn't get in the book, which is why I think it's important for the audience, like Mm. both go read the book and also listen to this Q&A because I I thought the optimism was just more clearly articulated in my mind when when we were uh, having the conversation with him. I absolutely agree. So with that, I think that that was a good time to leave you guys with the recording as Franco Escobar and myself talk with Kim Stanley Robinson about his book, Ministry for the Future, and we hope you enjoy. Enjoy. Is the world on fire? Thank you, everybody. Thank you, and thanks to the Kroc Institute. It's a real pleasure to be here. And I'm going to talk for about um, a half hour, a little bit less, uh, to describe what I'm seeing as our current moment. So I'm going to have to skate fast over thin ice. And it's, um, or maybe this is a better analogy. This is going to be like a tightrope walk that we all need to walk together, lead you over the tightrope between... The sense of danger, the fear, the dread, the climate anxiety that exists, the the sense that the way that we are now with each other is a kind of um, preposthumous doom that we're living out. And then also what is sometimes called cruel optimism, that everything is going to be all right, that we have immense forces that can fix these problems, and that we only need to 
let the things that are happening happen and we're all going to be all right. Both of those are wrong and you need to walk a tightrope between them to really be true to the time that we're in. It is a really dangerous time. There's a paper from 2009 in Nature. It's called uh, A Safe Operating Space for Humanity. And it's got to be one of the most influential scientific papers ever published. It described nine planetary boundaries that we need to stay within or else we may cause a runaway feedback effect where the planet gotten hot enough to release more heat producing gases, things would quickly get out of hand. So this paper by Johann Rockström and Will Steffen, a great scientist and mountaineer and Antarctic person who just recently died, this paper describes the nine planetary boundaries we have to stay within, and three of them we have already exceeded. Climate change, the change of CO2 in the atmosphere heating it up, uh, biodiversity loss, the beginning of a mass extinction event, and then also the capture of nitrogen out of the atmosphere and the application of it to the land surface, the disturbance of the nitrogen cycle, well, that's not one that I will pay much attention to here, but it is at least on the list. And then some of the other six planetary boundaries we need to stay within, we, are, we don't know what those boundaries are in the way that we know these others. So the danger is of a runaway to what the scientists call hothouse Earth. And that was periods of time in Earth's geological past where there was no ice on this planet. The average temperature was higher, the amount of carbon dioxide and methane in the atmosphere was very much higher, and the result was a kind of a, an ice-free planet has a sea level approximately 270 feet higher than it is now. And I, I checked on the topographical maps, and the water would be about up here in this room. We're at about 270 feet here. Well, that won't happen in most scenarios, because ice-free times in the Earth's geological history have been rare, but it is a feedback loop such that the warmer it gets, the faster it gets warmer. And a hothouse Earth would be the end of human civilization. The same is true in a less direct way of a mass extinction event. The sixth great mass extinction event is one that we've started. We're in it. It's anthropogenic. We caused it. And if it continues, the biodiversity loss will be like losing parts of our own body. So when the scientific community at the IPCC said, we need to probably get back to 350 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, and we're now at about 410, it fluctuates, and that we need to hold the global average rise in temperature to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which we are already at 1.1, and we are going to shoot through that 1.5, given the trajectories that we're on right now. These are not made-up limits. They're attempts by the scientific community to find real biophysical boundaries that we break through at our peril. And what I mean by that is this. If we start a, a runaway heating effect that is dynamic and strong enough, nothing humanity can do would stop it. It will be outside humans' capacity, physical powers, to claw back from that situation. And at that point, we will be facing 
a catastrophe of a, a truly monumental order. So we are in high danger. We do have to change. And I want to spend most of the rest of this talk describing the changes that I am seeing happening. It's not just the Rockstrom paper of 2009, it's the IPCC reports that have been coming out with increasing urgency out of a, a UN-based process. So it's an international community that is pointing out the danger to us time after time. And so that increased awareness of the necessity to change, and then also the COVID pandemic slapping us in the face, the biosphere telling us you can have your life changed instantly. You can be killed by um, a dysfunction in the biosphere itself, by other living members of it. There's an increased sense of urgency and seriousness that I'm not at all sure would have existed without the COVID pandemic. So there is perhaps an unintended good side effect of that pandemic of making us realize that climate change is even more serious and we have to deal with it. So since uh, Ministry for the Future came out about uh, two and a half years ago, I have been doing nothing but talking about it with people all over the world, mostly by Zoom, but also by travel, uh, which feels strange, of course, because that's burning carbon. And yet I needed to talk to people about it. And I'm seeing signs all over that we, the humanity, civilization, is actually responding to this danger that we're in in positive ways that are surprising to me. And I have to say, I wrote this book in 2019, and we are in a better space now than we were in 2019 in several different ways. So let me list some of the things that are happening. And so I'm going to shift over from describing the danger, which I hope all of you are aware with anyway, to what I see in the way of solutions. First and most importantly, the Paris Agreement an international uh, a treaty signed by almost all the nations on earth that we will cope with climate change by taking action together. And there are a couple interesting features of the Paris Agreement, and it's easy to read, by the way. It's a short document. It's written in diplomatic language, not legal language, so that you can understand it, and it's interesting. And it says two things. Everybody has to agree to every statement that comes out of every COP meeting in the fall. A consensus. This is unusual in political and human affairs where everybody has to agree or else nothing gets signed. It makes that process very slow, but it's slow and definitive. Whatever is said out of a COP meeting has gotten the agreement of all the nations on earth. That's powerful. And then the other thing is that there's a promise in the Paris Agreement that every year they will ratchet up their promises to make them better, to be more exacting, to accelerate the uh, responses to climate change. That too is very powerful in the Paris Agreement. So that's great, and I saw it in Glasgow at COP26. A stunning sight. It took me, perhaps I've not yet even come to terms with it, to see diplomats from all over the world, activists, and people working hard to craft sentences. And since I craft sentences for a living, I was super interested to see these people very meticulously trying to decide word by word, what they would say to the world is a promise that everybody would keep together. So that's interesting. Then also at Glasgow COP26, private capital, which is to say business and huge amounts of capital. For instance, the Federal Reserve keeps $5 trillion in reserve. No, that's the Chinese Central Bank. Our Federal Reserve has $4 trillion in reserve. Mark Carney, the 
Chancellor of the Exchequer previously gathered private capital that promised to invest greenly at Glasgow, 130 trillion. And that is a good, quick shorthand for the relative power of government action and private investment capital. This is a capitalist world, and what capital does will make a gigantic difference. And you could be an aging leftist hippie from the Vietnam era. I don't know who that would be, but um, it doesn't matter. We are in a capitalist world and capital has to act. And it's now looking around and saying, you know, it's not good for business if the world goes down in flames and, every, and the society collapses. It's just not good for business and it doesn't stabilize money either. So business and the central banks are looking to um, projects that would be what you might call green investment projects to invest in biosphere protection and also in justice among humans as being part of that project. That's been good. And when you see the phrase risk-adjusted investment, the risk that's being adjusted for is rapid climate change. And the reinsurance companies, these are giant companies that insure the insurance companies. They're at the short end of the stick, except for governments themselves. And they are very concerned with risk-adjusted investment. Private capital has now gone to the World Bank, which is a kind of an American-led international lending bank, let's say, to stabilize the world economy. And they, private capital has gone to the World Bank and said, if you will securitize our investments, if we lose money doing this good thing in the global south, then will you back it? Will you pay us? Will you become a kind of an insurance company for private capital? And the World Bank is gathering its forces to say yes to that because it's more important that we quickly green this planet and save ourselves from the climate change dangers than it is, I would say, this is a little bit of a speculative statement, it's more important than that than we get instant economic justice on this earth. The central banks themselves, in my novel I wrote about a carbon coin. The carbon coin is a essentially green or a decarbonizing uh, quantitative easing. So you know about quantitative easing from 2008 and from the beginning of the pandemic. Central banks simply, let me simplify, they just make up new money, give it out, and they gave it to private banks in 2008, a very foolish way to try to save that economy, but it was what they were thinking. In the pandemic, they actually gave it to citizens directly, and it was much more effective. And we're talking here, sometimes people say 10 trillion, sometimes people say 20 trillion, and it did not disturb people's sense that money was real. So green quantitative easing is being discussed by the central banks. And there's an organization I didn't know of when I wrote my book called the Network for Greening the Financial System. This is about 90 to 100 central banks, and I mean all the big ones, which is China, EU, United States, and Brazil, and then another 90 central banks, all working together to figure out could we indeed do green quantitative easing on a regular basis and make sure that the first creation of that new money is paid out to good biosphere work, uh, clean energy, climate justice, and biosphere restoration. And then that money would enter the economy like any other money when it, once it had been spent greenly. Estimates now, if you were to create about $2 trillion a year, year by year by year, every year, we might be able to 
save the day in a way that will avoid the runaway hothouse effect. The economy, the, wor the gross world product is about 75 to $100 trillion per year. So injecting $2 trillion per year to do green projects first, it not only might save the biosphere, but it also represents a kind of a full employment program. Uh, in other words, anybody that wants a job and is capable of a job and thinks that a meaningful job is a good thing to have, could probably get paid by this new green work. There's also the strangely quick change in prices so that it's cheaper to do solar and wind than it is to do coal and oil, hugely helpful and accelerating. There is also the Biden administration's IRA bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. So they could have called it the Save the World Act or the Inflation Reduction Act. And us being Americans, we called it the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, but I have to say, trusting money is crucial. And when we're playing around with it like this in somewhat unconventional ways and making up new money, it is probably right to try to keep money as stable as possible in its value. Lastly, and I love this, the Biodiversity Agreement, COP15, it was in Montreal, although the Chinese were the hosts, but because of the pandemic, they hosted it in Montreal. This just finished last fall. It should be better known than it is. When I wrote Ministry for the Future, I, I used an idea from E.O. Wilson, the great um, biologist, and he had a book called Half Earth, that we leave half of the earth and half of the ocean to the wild animals, and then they will be healthy, and that will make us healthy. It's one of the most utopian ideas. I laughed, I thought if a science fiction writer did this, they would just be um, scoffed at as being crazily utopian. This will never happen, and so I'm gonna write it into my book. And in Montreal, they signed, and this is all the nations again, 30 by 30. 30% of the Earth's surface is preserved for the wild brothers and sisters that we have out there by the year 2030. And everybody who loves this project, they say, well, 30 by 30, and then 50 by 50. So this is the, one of the most encouraging things that I have ever heard in the last couple of years. Underreported, I don't know why. I think we're all weary of giant change and talk on the global level. Uh, but that is good news to take home. So when I talk about the good things that are happening, first of all, there's intense resistance to many of these. There is a, a group of people on this planet who are convinced that the status quo will leave them safer and more powerful for themselves and for their uh, descendants. And there will be people who will be fighting hard their entire life to prevent green carbon uh, decarbonization works. It, we're in a political battle. Not everybody's going to be convinced of the analysis that I've just given you. And so against that fight, or in that world that we're in, when I talk about these good things that are possible, I can see on people's faces and in the Q&A afterwards, and it's like, well, that would be great if it worked, but we're human beings. We're screwed. We, we don't cooperate that much. We're always at each other's throats. And I want to point out that although we are in global capitalism, which allows a few people to take advantage of the work of many people and then lord it over them. That's not a great system. We're also in the nation state system, where each nation considers it a zero sum game in a battle against all the other nations with differential advantage, so that if another nation wins, you lose, vice versa. When there's a global biosphere emergency, neither of these systems are good. They're awkward as hell. But 
There is still, nevertheless, international cooperation everywhere all, everywhere, all the time. And so consider that when this lecture and this event is over today, you'll go, you'll go out to your cars, you'll get in your cars, you'll drive home and you'll say, well, people are just terrible at cooperation. You will have just cooperated with several hundred people to not kill each other on the freeway. The cooperation is superb. I mean, it's, it's a, it takes a mental and physical abilities to be uh, driving around in a, in a thing that could kill you if something went wrong. And the people around you, you have to trust to be as good as you are, or you might be dead. Well, nobody's even going to have their pulse go up one beat on the freeways of San Diego because we're used to cooperating. You can fly to the other side of the world and turn on your cell phone, and it will work, and you can call home. You'll be on the other side of the world 24 hours after you left home, no matter where you began. This is cooperation. And I have a science fiction colleague who once reckoned to me that the lives that we live as middle-class Americans, if you counted up the number of people it takes to make the stuff and that allows us to live the lives that we live, and I mean everything, this writer, and I trust his judgment, said it would take a minimum of 100 million people to do it. That gave me pause, but then he ran me through the numbers. And what I want to emphasize here is that actually human beings are very good at cooperation, and we're already in a society of 8 billion people on a planet that we don't know how many people this planet can support over the long haul. It might be 8 billion, it might be more, it might be a little less. It depends what we do and how we, how we arrange our, our lives here. But it's already an astonishing feat of altruism and cooperation. So coping with climate change that might wreck civilization, I think we can do it if we understand it. And it might be just a matter of gaining a working political majority, either 51% or 55% or 60% in certain situations, and pushing on through against the people who don't agree with you, and understanding that anything that we do, there's going to be cross-chop and people objecting out of their own native skepticism or, their or various other kinds of desires, we still could get it done. So I want to end quickly with a couple of, these are more speculative good things that could happen, that should happen. That's a sea level rise problem that I spoke to you of. The glaciers in Antarctica and Greenland are sliding into the sea and then they melt there. They're sliding faster and faster. If we could slow those glaciers down to their historic speeds, they would not melt. It's not air temperature. It's the speed of the glaciers sliding into the sea that is the danger here of rising sea level. Can we stop glaciers from sliding fa as fast as they are now? Maybe. My book describes one method. There are other methods. The glaciological community is into it. They would like to make a contribution of that sort. They're down there thinking about it all the time. You can suck the water out from under a glacier and it thumps back down onto its rock bed and it slows again. What you would need is the US Navy, perhaps in, but the US Navy could do it alone, for sure, uh, to establish a little uh, city of aircraft carriers down there in the Ross Sea. And then you would need the oil and gas industry, who are precisely the people that we don't want pulling oil and gas out of the ground. 700,000 of them have been let go in the last six years. 160,000 of them are let go in the last two years. 
they are all good at pulling liquids out from under hard surfaces. It's what they do. And believe me, water from under ice is way easier than oil from under rock. And so what it needs is the desire, the plan, and the money to do it. And that one is relatively inexpensive compared to some of the plans that are floated out there, by which I mean something like $50 billion a year. But you would, it might be hard to spend that much money doing a project in Antarctica, to tell you the truth. There's not much down there to spend it on. The other thing I would like to see, and I'm getting very close to the end here, is we used to have this thing called progressive taxation. It worked. The more you made, the more you paid. And the, at the end of World War II, under Republican president and Congress, we had a tax rate such that if you made more than $400,000 above that, it was a 91% taxed rate. Now that was progressive taxation. It was post-World War II. There was a high rate of profit. There was a feeling that rich people had caused World War II and were not to be admired. There was a different structure of feeling and a different legal regime that has been chopped away at every decade since until the last chop of the previous administration where it's dropped a 20% maximum tax rate, no matter how much you made. If you make a billion dollars, well, before I say that, let's say this. How much do you need to be totally secure? I'll just make a guess. This is, I'm throwing a number out of You need $10 million. Okay, you got $10 million. You're going to be okay. Your kids are going to be okay. Healthcare food, clothing, shelter, et cetera, education. A billionaire has, oh God, I need my wife here for these numbers, but let's put it this way. If a billion, a billion is a thousand million. So if you divided your billion dollars into a thousand little piles, and then you took away 990 of those piles, that's a hell of a tax rate, but you still have $10 million and you'll have all you need. So the grotesque Gilded Age disparity of wealth that creates injustice, where there are some people who don't have a home in this country, and then there are people who have a billion dollars, why are they admired? Why are they talked about? Why aren't they taxed out of existence? It's because our legislators don't do what we want. Thank you. It would make the money we need to spend on the good projects. You wouldn't just have to make it up from scratch in quantitative easing. You could just use progressive taxation on individuals, on corporations, on income, and on assets, and always progressive. And there you would have a huge solution to our problem. Some people talk about this, but I think it should be talked about more. Okay, I'm going to end with this. When I was not really young, but kind of young, um, there was a thing you would see on bumper stickers. It was down here in San Diego. Whoever dies with the most toys wins. So this was a joke. It was cynical. It was a remark on the meaninglessness of post-Cold War American prosperity, of the, shall I say, the mild stupidity of, of American culture of that time. And people were either making fun of it with this bumper sticker or else they were quite serious about it, depend what kind of car it was on. <laughs> it was a crisis of meaning. Life did not mean things. You were told as a young person, um, go to college, then you get a job, then you work your life, and then you have a partner and children, and then you die. And what was the point of that, of all that intense work? Nobody knew. Well, now, climate change. We are in an existential crisis, civilization, humanity itself. 
life has meaning again. We have to do it. There is no young person that could say, oh gosh, there's no existential point, which is indeed a crisis. We need meaning badly to stay sane, to stay focused, to have a project. Well, now it's, it's slapping us in the face. There is not a problem anymore about a question of meaning for humanity. So once again, a kind of a, a, a good side effect of a very dangerous situation. With that, um, Tia, Franca. Thank you so much for that lecture, Stan. Um, I definitely learned a lot already, even having read the book. <laughs> Fill in some holes for me. Without further ado, we do want to start our Q&A portion of the event. Some of these questions have come from members of the audience, and so we're happy to get through as many of them as possible today in this very short period. The first line of your book is, it was getting hotter. And while I promise not to give away anything for those who haven't read the book yet, I do want to say that your book paints a picture of a world where people are dying more of heat than from war and where even the act of breathing at times can be painful. This kind of reality has led some people to embrace a form of ideological extremism that in some ways shapes um, eco-terrorism, while others have formed social movements and tried to broaden institutional capacity to fight it. As hosts of the Croc Schools podcast, Is the World on Fire? We would like to ask you this burning question, is the world on fire? Well, we've raised the temperature of the earth by, our, by accident of our industrial activities. Uh, and so there's no one really culpable for this one um, by 1.1 degrees Celsius. And um, as I explained, 1.5 is about as high as we want to raise it before we go into realms of extreme danger. So, um, well, we're in California. When, sometimes when you ask, is the world on fire, you're going, yeah, it's there. It's burning, the forests, the coastal range. So, but in a sense of, um, this is where we have to keep walking that tightrope. We're in a situation of high danger. The world is not yet burning. I was in India last spring and there was a heat wave. And it was wet bulb 30. But it, my book, and I don't care about spoilers, believe me. I'll tell you the lessons if you want. At wet bulb 35, human beings die within hours of hyperthermia. It's a combination of heat and humidity. That's what the wet bulb means. It's not dry heat because dry heat, you can be fine at astonishing temperatures. But wet heat, you, your sweat fails and you die. Four or five hours. And it can be it for, even if you're indoors in the shade with a fan on you, and without any clothes on, you're still gonna be parboiled. It's dangerous. But when I was there last spring, wet bulb 30, well, it was, it was like a day in, in Washington, D.C. <laughs> to actually, having lived there, a hot summer day. So we're not burning, but we're kind of heating up. I mean, this is the thing we have to keep in mind. There's still some time for us to act before these major catastrophes. And I have to say, the first scene of my book which I will not read aloud in public, it's too much. Um, it could happen, but now that we know that it could, we might uh, be able to forestall it and stop it from happening. Uh, Stan, thank you very much for being here with us. So we're sitting at the Croc School, and many of the people in this room are working to develop solutions, practical solutions to, to this problem, and also to end cycles of violence and to fight against injustices. And in your book, this subject of violence comes up a good number of times. So for example, some, some characters are 
actively trying not to engage in violence in spite of pressures to do so. And some other characters are using violence as a means to reach these practical solutions, right? Um, to, as a way to jump over bureaucracy or discourse. And so I'll give you two examples. One of your characters says that the very act of burning fossil fuels and carbon is a violent act that we engage in because of the people who die as an indirect result from it. Uh, another example is uh, later in the book, someone says that um, um, using violence as a way of resistance, for example, against inanimate objects, such as a coal plant, could be something that we could be doing in a world with climate change. And one of the questions from the audience really caught my attention, and it reads, the present moment is characterized by historically low levels of intrahuman violence. However, on the other hand, massive levels of violence against the non-human world. Do you have a vision of a sustainable economy that does not come at the expense of violence towards the non-human world? And how can we reconcile we, this relationship to nature? Yes, and I, I, I spoke about this in my um, talk just finished, so I'll try to come at it from a different angle. I'm against violence. I think it rebounds against the cause that you're trying to use it in. And that is an overgeneralization because every once in a while there's been a revolution that has made positive change. But it's an exception sometimes that proves the rule. And what I wanted to say with my book is that if people see everybody in their village die, the survivor is going to be angry and want not just justice, but vengeance. And at that point, you've got people who will blow themselves up to blow you up. And if we don't change, we're going to be in that kind of a world with those kind of people in it all the time. So we need to change, and partly from the knowledge that the situation could be dangerous, not just from climate, but from um, extremely angry other humans. Um, and they might be thinking that they're changing the world by doing violence. Usually that doesn't happen. There you want to look at mass movements, uh, nonviolent resistance, the whole kind of thing that gets talked about at your school for sure. I'm positive of it. Um, Thoreau and Gandhi and Martin Luther King. How do you change the powers that be? Like say you elect legislators that then don't do what you wanted them to do. That happens a lot. Then how do you change their minds? Well, You've seen crowds of 5 million people in Washington, D.C. Would if it was 40 million people. It goes on and on like that. You see what I'm saying? There are methods of civil disobedience that might get the attention of the powers that be if they aren't doing what you elected them to do. Then also, Andreas Malm, you must study him. I wouldn't be surprised. How to blow up a pipeline. And this book is not a technical manual in how to blow up a pipeline. It's when is it going to be the right thing for middle-class citizens to do to break property, to sabotage rather than murder. This is a distinction that my novel does not make clearly. You can't read Ministry for the Future and get clarity on the murder versus sabotage question because my novel is a mess, because history is a mess. So... Um, Slow violence is what we're doing to poor people every day. The immiserated of this earth that don't have toilets, don't have clean water. And also in America, the incredible disparity and the, the immiseration of the bottom end of the precariat. The upper end of the precariat, which is us, at least is precarious at a higher position on the, the level of life maintenance. But at the bottom end, it's terrible. That's slow violence. 
When does that turn into quick violence, fast violence? This is a Rob Nixon distinction that is important to make. And then lastly, Erica Chenoweth, why civil resistance works. If we all stop paying all of our debts on July 4th this year, the private banks would all crash. They would come to the government and say, oh my gosh, we crashed, bail us. And then the government could say to them, like they said to GM in 2008, fine, we'll bail you, but now we own you. So you could, in fact, nationalize the banks by public action of noncompliance. Now, that's financial violence, but that is not violence in the way that I think the word ought to be used, which is one human physically hurting another human. Always wrong. But a, a radical action, we might need it, and it needs to be talked about. In your book, you, and, and in your speech just now as well, you talked about several solutions that have been posited in different communities, whether it's the glacial work or it's by biologists, that 50-50 or 30-30 idea that now has come through the COP26. Um, and what I loved about it is that within a fictional setting, you were able to project into the future that does not yet you know, exist, that we don't know, and come up with storylines that weave in and out of what might happen and what could be done to stop it. Um, this question was also informed by an audience member and it's that you've successfully used fiction to explore how numerous challenges that we face as humans can be resolved or what, you know, what we're doing to continue them. This book is just the latest example, of course. Um, one of the most common pitfalls that we fall into as a peace school and I think as academics often is getting really good at describing problems, talking about how complex they are, but we don't always get good at figuring out solutions or steps that we can take to ameliorate them. And so I'm wondering what you feel the value is of fiction and storytelling in a school of peace studies and what we can be doing with fiction to kind of build institutional capacity around collective imagining and solution making. Well, I'm happy to talk about that, although this is the classic, um, you know, the carpenter's solution to the problem is a hammer. So I really believe in stories, <laughs> I have to say. Um, what they do in the world is hard to determine. But say you are trying to figure out strategies for peace. We have a rhetoric for words. The ancient Greeks worked it all out. The various methods of persuasion that are in classical rhetoric, um, a reductio ad absurdum or pretended dubitation followed by a renewal of the attack. I mean, it's quite spectacular, the rhetoric of words. But rhetoric of actions in the world... We don't have it, I don't know why. Uh, maybe every moment of history is contingent and you can't really work up a handbook of actions because they're always gonna be suited to the moment that you're in. I don't know. It's something for an institute like yours to study. What could you do in the world that is most effective? If you lie down on Highway 5, actually we did this in 71 when they bombed Cambodia. You stop people from getting to work. They're doing it in London, Extinction Rebellion. A whole bunch of ordinary citizens are late for work that day, they hate you. I mean, these goddamn hippies, they're, they're wrecking my life. They're so self-indulgent. They can afford to be late for work because they're not even working. We're supporting them around the dole. Whereas we are late for work for these people. Did that work as an action? I think not. But a similar, another example. Say you go down to a hedge fund or an asset manager, and these are people working in finance who are making huge amounts of money personally, but they're also handling 
billions of dollars for a pension fund, for an investment fund. They're trying to get the alpha, which is the difference between what the market gets and what your company can get you. They get the alpha, et cetera, et cetera. You go to work one day and there are a bunch of kids glued to the doors of your place. They're sitting there glued to it. You have to unglue them. It's a pain in the ass. They'll probably go to jail. The police are involved. But you go in thinking that day, why do these people glue themselves? And the people doing that thinking are asset managers controlling your pension funds that are nevertheless supporting fossil fuels, even though you don't like it. So maybe targeted actions. This is, I'm trying to feel my way through this. Well, those are just two stories that I told you. So in your situation, scenarios, modeling exercises, story after story, and what I've tried to do in my career is tell utopian stories. And I mean history going better rather than worse. That's a simple definition of utopia. Not the perfect place that we'll never get to that stupid people want to solve all problems with. That's the typical definition of utopia when you want to kill it as an idea. Let's just do the status quo, because if you try to get better, it'll get worse. Well, no. Trying to get better is one name for what we do, and we need it. So utopian fiction has been my thing. I mean, I, I was, uh, one of my teachers was Ursula K. Le Guin, the great, the great mama bear of the science fiction world and of American literature. Um, a wonderful accident of history that I got to study with her and become a friend. She showed the way with the dispossessed and the left-handed darkness. These science fiction stories can they call it cognitive estrangement, but really it blows your mind. And your, your mind is blown, you're thinking, oh my God, the world could be different because of a story that you read. And you, while you're reading it, you're living it. And I do wanna say thank you to readers. It's a very generous act. You have to co-create. You're looking at sentences on the page and some kind of movie's happening in your head. Well, that's not entirely the writer's doing. So a canny writer, a, is very grateful to his or her readers. And readers are thinking, oh, that writer, I just love that writer. Well, that writer, if they're smart, they love you because you're making the book real inside your head. And so it's a crucial part of the, of the dynamic there. And, and, and if you've lived a story for two weeks, you've spent 20, 30, 40 hours reading it. It's immensely long. Some of these novelists are so long-winded, I can't believe it. <laughs> but... Um, after you're done with that week in that other world, you've been in someone else's head, you've been in a different time and place. It's an extraordinary experience that is both fictional and real. And that's powerful because, okay, it didn't really happen, but wait a second, you have a memory of it. And what about the memory of when you, I'll finish with a time travel story that my friends will appreciate. One day, we drove from 1955 to 1970 in a single hour because we had been living in Orange County, California. And from 1966 to 1970, it was exactly the same as it would have been in 1954 to 1955. The Life magazine had some alarming stories in it, but as far as our lives were concerned, we were 1955 kids. We got on Highway 5, we drove down to start at UCSD, 1970, in an hour. And 1970 was wild. It was intense. And so the, the shock of that, the time traveler shock, uh, has never gone away, I think. The, and we're entering another rapid 
time shift. The changes, especially the young people here, the changes that are going to happen in, not in your lifetime, and maybe for all of us in the next 10 years, it's going to resemble the 70s, which is, you know, that's not a good thing to say. Uh, not necessarily. But it's not a bad thing either. It's, it's a, a sense of uh, a possibility that anything could happen, and, and that includes good things. So um, this is what stories can help you with. Thank you also for that answer. Um, one person in the audience asked uh, about quantum computing and how it will increase our ability to process information 10 times faster at least, um, and that this will actually help us break encryption codes and also affect climate change. And one of the things that this question got me thinking about is technologies, right? The Crook School has also uh, the Spark Institute, and uh, we have students studying social innovation. And I feel like technology is always intertwined with both progress or regressions and like how we interact with the challenges in the world. And so I'm curious to know what you think are two technologies that might maybe scare you or that might give you a sense of optimism about how we can use them to solve this problem. I'm like the most conservative and idea-free science fiction writer that you could possibly be. <laughs> I'm more of a reporter uh, and a historical fiction writer. So, and I'm deeply skeptical of all these future things. You could say immediately, um, if we could do fusion power, uh, then we would have a stupendous sources of energy. But we already have stupendous sources of energy through solar and wind, so I don't know how transformative that would be. And also, I went to see the fusion work being done at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory up in Livermore, California, and it's straight out of a Steven Spielberg movie. It is a gigantic warehouse with millions of pieces of machinery, including lots of mirrors and uh, bouncing lasers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You have to crush something um, from all directions equally, and then at, yet at the same time have a space for the energy that you've crushed to get out. So how does it get out when you're crushing it from all directions equally? The problems are beyond my comprehension, beyond that simple explanation. But say we do get fusion power. Well, maybe it would be great. Maybe it would just be a few gigantic power stations scattered around the world that are way more expensive than other methods. I can't tell. Same with AI. We've all been reading chat GPT-3 and thinking, really, These, this mind, such as it is, is going to save us? No. But it will get better. And quantum computing is a real thing. If they can stabilize the qubits, if they can write good algorithms in the first place. So when I may say they, I mean human beings. It comes back to human beings, to the programmers, to the mathematicians. Right now, there's a quantum um, uh, algorithm. Shor's algorithm. And with a quantum computer, you can solve in 20 minutes what a classical computer would take a billion years to solve. Okay, that's fast. Wow. I don't get it. I don't understand why having three positions rather than two and superposition and all that. I don't see why that should work. But what Shor's algorithm does is it factors prime numbers. Well, that's not going to get us out of climate change. You would have to have a much more interesting input to get an interesting output. And whether they can write algorithms that help us with decisions, no, this is executive function. This is philosophy, wisdom, peace studies, the humanities, the arts. It's, it's everything else that we do as humans making the executive decisions. Um, we need to try to do this. And then the laws of technology, 
And as I pointed out in my talk, money is a technology. Um, fiscal tech, which is to say, let's make up some money out of scratch and give it to um, good causes instead of just giving it to private banks to loan out for stupid projects. Whoa, a technological innovation, you know, a kind of little mini financial revolution. That's the technologies that I'm interested in. So unfortunately, we're starting to come to the end of our time. And you did touch on this at the end of your lecture. Um, we want to ask again, though, as those of us who might not be as steeped in the environments of those talking about solutions for climate change, um, you've talked about attending in, in Glasgow the Climate Accord uh, Agreement uh, meetings and talking with a lot of the highest echelons of policymakers around this issue, as well as being in the academic foray and speaking with those who are thinking and, and coming up with solutions. The book, you know, I think for some people, we might walk away feeling kind of hopeless at times. You talked about walking that, that uh, rope or it feeling like there are moments where like, there's a solution posed and it, it doesn't quite work the way you wanted it to or it's not, it's not enough, right? And you only have, any one of us might only be specialized in one area and might only see within that scope. So see that bigger picture is a bit more difficult and that's something your book, I think, does lend itself to. So the question is, you know, as someone who is more understanding of the complexity of the problem, but also the different ways that it's being approached, where do you find hope? And how do you think we can continue to tell the story of climate change in a way that continues this hope and engenders that kind of momentum collectively? Well, I wrote the Ministry for the Future as a mess where after every good thing that happened, something bad happened because that's the way it's going to be. And I didn't want people reading the book and thinking, this is too good to be true. And indeed, it's a utopian novel in which we dodge a mass extinction event and we start bringing down the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. This is a very low bar for utopia. Um, they have a list of problems at the last COP that's described in the book, and the list of problems is severe. They have not solved nuclear weapons. They have not solved women's rights. They haven't even gotten a good grip on equity. They've done a few things in this novel. I think we can do more. There were sentences in my novel that I wrote in 2019. I can tell I was in a much more foul state of mind. Um, um, the, the sentence, the 2030s were zombie years, that is wrong. It felt like it was possible in 2019. We were making so little progress. And that's just wrong. This is the decade of intense action. That's a reason for hope, really. We are, we are in a, a kind of collective um, global emergency mode. That has its dangers, and there's going to be a lot of things go wrong along the way while we're still making overall good progress. In fact, it reminds me of the mouths of these rivers here in San Diego that I love so much, the estuaries. There's cross chop on the surface that's wild. I mean, even on an ordinary day, much less today. But the cross chop on the surface, underneath it, a current is going in a direction. So when you look at the news, when you look at social media, remember you're looking at cross chop. And where the real current is going might be a very good place for you and your future. And so I, I get my hope from the memory of my mom, to tell you the truth. And then everybody has to look in the same places. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode. Before you go, we want to hear from you. Share your questions, stories, or ideas on the fires you see in today's world. Contact us on Instagram at crockschool or via email at istheworldonafire at gmail.com. And let us know, what is your fire? Today's episode was produced by myself, Franco Escobar, McCoy Turpin, and Thea Clement, with special help from Scott Lundergan and Ryan Murphy. It was edited by Jim O'Connell, with original music by Victor Daniel Castro Escobar. Promotion is made possible by Kevin Dobbins, Tony Campos, Grayson Walker, and Andrew Biros. We'd also like to offer up a special thanks to the Dean of the Croc School, Dr. Patricia Marquez. <laughs>